in a six-week series uh, out of the book of Amos called Let Justice Roll. Let Justice Roll. We're going to look at chapter 2 today, Amos chapter 2. We're going to see what we can learn from this Old Testament prophet. I mentioned last Sunday that Amos is a book filled with doom and gloom. So we tend to probably avoid those kind of uh, scriptures, but we believe in the totality of the Word of God. And when Anchi First Assembly, we believe that whether it's a passage that we like or a passage that makes us uncomfortable, God has something for us. God has something to say to us in the entire Word of God. So even though this is a difficult passage, we're tackling it, and we're asking God and the Holy Spirit to give us some insight on how we can learn from this prophet Amos. Now, Amos has nine chapters, and I'll just be honest with you, (coughs) beginning with uh, chapter one, through about half of chapter eight, it's filled with uh, darkness. It's it's pretty uh, gloomy. The second half of the last chapter, and if you just stay with me until we finish this series, you will see that the final verses of this book remind us that God is faithful. God is caring. God is a God who loves us and has something better for us at the end of the trial and the tribulation and the valley that we're going through. Friends, don't get your eyes on COVID. Don't get your eyes on the economy. Don't get your eyes on what's happening around us. This is not our final destination. We always have to keep our eyes on the promises of God. And there's a much better place if we will only believe and trust and obey. God has an awesome plan for his people. He did in the Old Testament and he does in the New Testament. Now, if you weren't here last week, We learned that Amos was a man that really seemed totally unqualified uh, to serve as a spokesman for God. He's uneducated. He's a shepherd. He's a caretaker of fig trees. uh, Yet God called him out, just as he's called you and I out to be his representatives, whether that's in an orchard or a classroom or behind a cash register, wherever God has you, he has called you to be an Amos today. God has called you to shine forth the hope that we have in knowing Christ as our Savior. Now, Amos, um, first of all, was called to preach to the two kingdoms that made up the Israelites at that point. We talked a little bit about that. There was Judah and Israel. They were divided at that time, and God had called him to give a message to them. But before he did that assignment, he also was called to give a message to various countries and nations. And in chapter 1, which where we were last week, we saw that he didn't address Judah first. He didn't address Israel first. He preached to six, you could count them in chapter 1, six different people groups that surrounded Jerusalem and, and surrounded Israel. And he preached, hey, you need to repent. What you're doing is wrong. You're going to suffer for your, your sins. And I have a feeling that Israel and Judah is much like we can be as a church. We cheer 
when we hear God's going to punish the unrighteous. Now, I'm sorry to say that, but we tend to have this us versus them mentality and say, oh, yeah, come on, God, you go get them. What they're doing is wrong. Get them. And we forget that really God's concerned about them, but God is concerned about his people, and he has similar messages for us. It's easy for us in the church to get excited when judgment and condemnation is spoken to our culture around us. We say, yeah, that's right. Go get them. But, you know, all this really kind of changes in chapter 2 because Amos is saying, hey, wait, 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 church. Wait, Israel. Wait, Judah. (laughs) The message is just not to the pagan nations. The judgment's about ready to fall on their laps. But God's actually saving some of the harshest criticism to the people of God. Wasn't spoken to those pagans. This criticism, this judgment is spoken to the covenant people of God. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but that sobers me up really fast. It really does. It's one thing for God to have his spotlight on somebody else. But when it turns upon my heart and I see the dirt and I see all the shortcomings and I see the sin... It's like in the springtime when the sun comes through your kitchen window and you see all the dirt and all the grime that was there from the winter. But God does that because he loves us. He's concerned about us. He's especially concerned about his chosen people. And he's not pleased when we who know his word, when we who have experienced his grace and his mercy turn a blind eye and we follow the ways of our culture we follow the ways of the crowd we get caught up and in fact what the people in his day the day of of Amos was very much like the New Testament people that Peter spoke to first Peter 4 let me just Before we read Amos 2, 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come for judgment. Now notice there's no period there. We could say, yeah, judge the world, just the injustice. It says, for the time has come for judgment, comma, and it must begin with us. God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits for those who have never obeyed God's good news? So today's a hard message, and it's for you, and it's for me. And I want you to be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to show us. Because God has such a a path of blessing, a path of peace, a path of joy for us if we are aligned with his principles. Amos chapter 2, we're going to read pretty much the whole chapter. I want to begin with verse number 4 today. And as I mentioned last week, I'm using the New Living Translation because this is really hard scripture, and so I wanted to use not a paraphrase, but a translation so it's accurate, but I wanted to use one that was real easy for us to understand. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again 
and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust. They shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. And at their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up a security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. But as my people watched, I destroyed the Amorites, though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks. I destroyed the fruit on their branches and dug out their roots. It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be the Nazarites. Can you deny this? My people of Israel, ask the Lord. Pause for a minute and think all the things God has done for you in your lifetime. Can you deny the love and the grace of God? But, verse 12 says, you caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, shut up. So I will make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. Your fastest runners will not get away. The strongest among you will become weak. Even mighty warriors will be unable to save themselves. The archers will not stand their ground. The swiftest runners will not be fast enough to escape, and even those riding horses won't be able to save themselves. On that day, the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives, says the Lord. Throughout my lifetime, I've experienced a lot of heartache when people who have served God who I've seen in our congregation with their hands up, worshiping the Lord. I've seen them baptized. I've seen them walking with the Lord. And then something happens and they turn their back. And they go back into the world. You've had family members. You've had friends. You've had people that you've been acquainted with that have fallen People who have proclaimed at one point, Jesus Christ is my Lord and I'm going to serve him. They've committed themselves to Christianity, but they've walked away. We've all experienced heartaches of pastors or spiritual leaders or televangelists that have fed us, that have been mentors to us who have lost their faith, who have walked away. And we all know what happens in the culture when someone walks away from their faith. The culture cheers. And they say, oh, we knew that was just hypocrisy. And the culture begins to to, to cheer uh, the failures of those who fall. And it seems to validate in some ways their disbelief and their desire not to follow God. Because they see Christianity as a joke. 
But what we're talking about this morning is not one person who falls or a half a dozen person who falls. We're talking about an entire nation. Now, when we talk about a nation, we're not talking about a geographical area. You know, we tend to think Israel is the current geographical boundaries that were established in 1948. And so we tend to think that because that is the boundary of the country, Israel. But in the scriptures, when you're talking about Israel, you're talking about a group of people. They could be living in or outside those boundaries. They would still be God's chosen people. And that entire group of people, not just one or two, the entire nation had fallen away from God. And what Amos was dealing with was really a spiritual free fall of an entire nation. Oh, they still went through their rituals. They still looked nice and clean and shiny on the outside. They still did all the stuff, but in their hearts, they were corrupt. They had allowed the culture to shape them. They were in what I called a spiritual free fall because they were unwilling to change their heart, their way. And that's why God told them the judgment was coming. It wasn't that they were disobeying all the outward laws. It was their hearts that were corrupt. And that's why I've entitled this message, Free Falling. Free Falling. Man, God had been watching them and had seen transgressions. What does the scripture say? Again and again. And finally, he was sick of it. (laughs) It's like I talked about our you know, when our dads come home last week. But, but sometimes moms reach their point of no return. And, and they'll say to their kids, okay, enough is enough. I've had it. They don't even say, wait till your dad gets home. They just say, I have had it. I'm at the end of my rope. And it's usually not said real quietly and gently. And as we read the text this morning, I've got the idea that that's kind of like the point that God got to. Man, I've tried my best. I've helped you. I've forgiven you. I've done all I can to walk with you. Yet, time and time again, you turn your back on me, and I'm at the point of desperation. Now, before we get into the the meat of our message, I'm still in my introduction, Okay, okay. Um, it, I just need to say this. Anytime we read scriptures, we're reading somebody else's mail. We have to remember the context. God is talking specifically to a specific group of people in a specific, specific context. So we're reading the mail sent by the way of Amos to a very specific group of people, Judah in Israel... Eight centuries, 800 years before Christ ever came. Amos is representing God and, and, and the people of the day who have sinned were real people who lived in those two kingdoms. So we have to realize that not everything in an Old Testament prophecy is going to apply directly to us. We have to take this in context. Some of it will only be applied to the situations. It's much like the the food laws of the Old Testament or the laws that said do not 
wear clothes that are mixed. You know, you can't wear cotton and wool or cotton and polyester together. There was reasons those commands were given in the Old Testament that really don't apply to us. So we've got to be a little careful as we navigate through Amos. Some of this applied only to the situation of their day. But friends, there are so many truths, so many principles that are taught throughout the scriptures that can help us. That's why we have the scriptures, right? Come on. Uh, Romans. Let's look at Romans 15.4 for just a minute. Such things, like what we're studying right now in Amos, such things were written in the scripture long ago. What does it say? To teach us. So let's not just say, oh, well, Amos was just, you know, declaring this to people hundreds of years before Jesus was born. No. These things are in the scripture for a reason. That's why we can't avoid them. To teach us. And the scripture, it says, will give us hope and encouragement as we wait for God's promise to be fulfilled. So what can we learn? One thing we can learn for sure is not to test the patience of God. I mean, seriously. We tend to get a little loosey-goosey sometimes with our relationship with God. Like he's just our buddy. He's like our friend. He's like that one that has so much grace that it doesn't matter how we live our life. But friends, that's not a biblical view of who God really is. It's part of who God is, but not an entire view. So we've got to ask ourselves this morning some hard questions. Are we, and I want you to personalize it, am I in a spiritual free fall? You might come to church every Sunday. You might be involved in ministry. I'm just saying, your heart, is it aligned correctly? Could you be in a spiritual free fall? Could I be in a spiritual free fall? We can look in the book of Amos. I think there's four, four lessons here regarding how we can avoid falling. Because we don't want to be free-falling. We don't want to be going through the motions. Man, we want God to move in our midst. We want to put God number one. So keeping from a spiritual free-fall, four things I've extracted here. Number one, we need to elevate God's word to its proper place. Elevate God's word to its proper place. Look at the very first verse I read, Amos 2, 4. This is what the Lord says. The people of Judah have sinned again and again. I will not let them go unpunished. Here it is. Listen. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord. It is easy, friends, for me, and I'm sure it's easy for you, to pick and choose the things that you want out of the Bible. And to ignore those things that convict us. Friends, in order to avoid being in a spiritual free fall like Israel was, we need to elevate God's word to its proper place. And we need to ask ourselves, what, what's true of us regarding God's word? Do we see God's word, the Bible, as something that we can set aside, say, well, that was for a different time? 
or I'm just going to be led by the Holy Spirit. I, I don't need that. Do we set it aside thinking that it doesn't pertain to our life or we're afraid of what it might reveal in our life? Well, the people of God in Amos's day would have said, oh, no, we love the love God. After all, we recite it in the synagogue every Sabbath. We order our lives according to the law of God. You can't say that we rejected it. Yet God said to those people, you're just going through motions. See, being around God's word isn't good enough. You can know God's word. It's still not good enough. You need to let God's word speak into your life to form your behavior. If you're taking notes, there's four D's, four D's right now, test that we can give ourselves if we are elevating the word of God or if we're ignoring it, like the day of Amos. The number one D is delight. Do we delight in the word? The Bible says we should delight in the word of God. The psalmist says that over and over again. Do you enjoy your time in the word? Or is it just drudgery? Is it easier for you to watch a, a good sitcom on television or get into a sporting event than the Word of God? Is the Word of God really something that you delight in? Maybe you read the Word of God, but it's only when bad things happen in your life. You know, when you're kind of pushed towards Scripture because of circumstances? Or do you delight in it? It should be like honey to us. It brings life to us. The second D is the direction test, along with the delight test. The people of Judah did not see the law as important for their lives in how they should conduct their lives. They were taking advantage of people. They were being unjust. We read about all that. Psalm 119, mark this down, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet. It's a light for my path. You can't just be a hearer of the word. You need to be a doer of the word. That's what James says. Are we applying it? We can delight in it, but it is it setting our direction. As you were making decisions this past week in your life, in your business, in your family, did you ever stop and say, I wonder what God's word says about this? That should be something that we are constantly asking ourselves. Well, what does God's word say about this? The third D is the dependence test. If we need a light to our path, that kind of implies if we don't have it, we're going to be in darkness, right? In other words, we're lost without God's word. If we're truly lost, futile in our own thinking, as the Bible says, then what does it say about those of us that maybe haven't opened our Bible since last Sunday or the last time you were in church? Man, this is spiritual nourishment just as our bodies need water our spirits need the word of God we need to delight in it we need to let it direct us we need to 
depend on it. And the final D is do it. <laughs> the do it test. Just do it. As Nike says, do it. Are you a hearer or a doer of the word? It's not based upon feelings. It's based upon a commitment that you've made, a decision that you made, that I am going to follow. I am going to apply the word of God. It's where the rubber meets the road. See, Judah and Israel, they knew the law. But as soon as they left the hearing of the word, they went out and did their own thing. I've done that. I've done that. I would pretty much guess that most of us have done that. Well, this is what the word says. I really know that this is what I need to do, but that's really hard, and that's not what I want to do, and I don't feel like doing that. And we go do our own thing. And we need to be people who are in the word, not just listening, but making sure we're not rejecting it in the daily comings and goings of our life. So we need to elevate the word in order to prevent a spiritual free fall. The second thing is that we need to eliminate all those things in our life that trip us up. See, Amos, in, in a way, was acting as a prosecuting attorney here. You know, in verse number six, he said, this is what the Lord says, and then he lays out the case. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. And that would have been offensive to him. Remember, the northern kingdom was at war with the southern kingdom. Amos is part of the southern kingdom. But he is going up to the northern kingdom to give this message. And what he declared to Israel was really pretty ugly. And he was an outsider. He began in his normal way, but then he described what they had done these heinous crimes against the heart of God, selling people into slavery. Man, human trafficking is a real issue in the United States of America today. Oppressing the poor, engaging in gross immorality. We read about it. But friends, it's kind of part of our culture. And it's accepted. But that doesn't mean we should accept it. Perverting justice, taking advantage of people, getting drunk, mistreating spiritual leaders. So much of what I read in Amos 2, unfortunately, I can see in our world today. But I want you to notice a difference, though. When the unbelieving world around them sinned, they were said to be offenses against other human beings. Okay, so you look around the world and there's offenses against other human beings. But I want you to notice when God speaks to us, the covenant people, the family of God, he doesn't say you have offended your fellow human race or your neighbor. or your, He says you have offended me. He judges those outside how they've treated one another. And he says, you have sinned against your brother or your sister. But when he's looking at us, 
He's saying, you've sinned against me. The creator, our sustainer. David got that. David got that. After his affair, after the murder, all that. Remember what he says in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, he wasn't in any way downplaying the consequences of his sin to other people. But he understood this concept. And when you and I walk away from the word of God, when we disobey, when we continue with our sins, it's God that we're offending. It's God that we're sinning against. We're profaning his name. It's not sinning against one another. It's sinning against a holy God, a righteous God, a just God. These commandments had come from God just as the commandments come to us from God. And if we deliberately not obey, we are basically profaning the holy name of God. When I was a kid, I was taught to take God's name in vain. One of the Ten Commandments was, you know, to, to use his name like a cuss word or something. We shouldn't do that. But, man, I have discovered it is so much more than that. We can profane the name of a holy God by knowing what we should do and not do it. Or knowing what we shouldn't do and do it anyway. I want to pause for a moment right now. I want to ask this question. In what ways might we be profaning the holy name of God? Just take a moment. Maybe close your eyes. Oh, Holy Spirit, we don't want to profane God's holy name. Show me anything in my life that's wrong. It's against your will, against your commandments. Show us, God, so we can walk in holiness and righteousness. You know, we all struggle with issues. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, how does God see this? Am I embarrassing God? So often we tend to look at somebody else's sin and say, well, I'm not, at least I'm not doing that. No, no. We need to say, God, it's against you. What sins in my life are affecting my relationship with you? And then acknowledge that. And then believe God has something better for you. And commit to doing God's will and not yours. He'll pick us up time and time again. Third thing, to prevent a spiritual free fall in your life, for us as a church, we've got to elevate the word of God. We have to eliminate those things that might trip us up. Number three, we've got to expect God's discipline. Oh, sometimes we think we can just get by with stuff. 
And sometimes we can get by with stuff for years and years and years. You might even go to your grave with secrets that your spouse doesn't know. But friends, unless you take care of those things, make sure your sins will find you out. God knows. Those things done in secret will be shouted from the mountaintop. That's what the Bible says. I know this is hard, but we need to hear it. Because all of us want to walk in holiness and righteousness with God. And when we don't, he's not just to ignore it. Come on. Any more than my mom and dad ignored rules in my house. Amos 2, beginning with verse 13. Saul, make you groan like a wagon loaded down. Your fastest runners will not get away. Your mighty warriors will be unable to save themselves. The swift, and he goes on and on. There's a simple equation here. If you look in verses uh, 4 through 8, when people sinned repeatedly, God waited patiently. And he gave them chance after chance after chance to repent. But eventually, inevitably, time runs out. And then in verse 13 to 16, it describes the outcome. God will deal with us, friends. We can't expect to disobey God and rebel and not be punished for it, not be disciplined for it. He disciplines those that he loves. And again, remember, we're reading somebody else's mail. It says God will cut off his people, take away all that they have. That changes in the New Testament. See, it changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament because we know 1 John talks to us as believers and says, hey, if you confess your sin, God's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God is not going to take his Holy Spirit from you. David was fearful of that. God is not going to cut you off forever. In the New Testament, we have that opportunity to go to God and in his grace and his mercy, he will forgive us. But we have to come to the realization that we need forgiveness. See, God doesn't revoke his, his, his punishment, so to speak. But remember, on this side of the cross, thank Jesus that he's taken the punishment for us. So you'll never be punished for your sins, but you could be disciplined for them. It's never too late to run to God, to fall at his feet and say, I'm sorry for my sins. But just because you're sorry doesn't mean God won't discipline you. I had tears in my eyes when I had to tell my mom and dad that I was throwing rocks across Highway 101. And from out of nowhere comes a car. And somehow, as the timing was, the rock hit the windshield and cracked Mr. Baker's windshield. And guess what? He stopped. And he knew who I was. <laughs> he knew where I lived. I felt so bad. I repented. I still had to use my money that I earned from my paper route to help the deductible on replacing Mr. Baker's windshield. 
There was still some discipline. There was still some consequence. It wasn't a matter of forgiveness, and it wasn't even punishment. So God does discipline us. Hebrews 12 tells us all about that. He disciplines because it humbles us. God told the people in Amos 2.13, Behold, I'll make you groan, press you down in your place. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but will give grace to the humble. God's discipline humbles us. Here's a great truth that we're reminded of as New Testament Christians. Maybe you've rebelled. Maybe you're thinking, oh, you know, I've got these things that I sh- should deal with, but I haven't, so now all I have is, is judgment, hellfire and brimstone. That's not it. Remember the story Jesus told in which God is like a father whose son rebels, runs off, wastes all his money and resources, And when he reaches the point of desperation and he repents and he runs back to the father, (laughs) the father runs out the driveway with his arms wide open. He doesn't say, get out of here. You had your chance. And I want to assure you that if there's things in your life that you need to deal with, sins that you have been ignoring, And the discipline comes. I want you to know God is there to forgive, to give you grace, to give you mercy. See, God's discipline is intended to be part of his love for us. I didn't understand that when my mother got the wooden spoon out. But, you know, I've never been arrested. I've never been in jail. Maybe that's because I learned early about consequences of disobedience. You know what I'm saying? It was for my good, and it was out of the love of her heart. Okay, I'm out of time, and I got one more point. Thank you. Who said that? Bless your heart. Thank you, Melody. I promise I won't go too much longer. The fourth thing, to keep from falling spiritually, express thanks to God for his faithfulness in your life, even when you're not faithful. And this is really important. And you notice that here, God reminded in Amos 2, I've been faithful to you. I, I, I led you out of the desert. I've done these things for you time and time again. And I think back in Amos chapter 2, one of the reasons God's so upset and angry is that he had remained faithful to them this entire time. You know, wasn't I the one that destroyed the Amorites? Wasn't I the one who brought you out of Egypt? Wasn't I the one that raised some of you up to be prophets and Nazarites? And I did this for you. Remember my faithfulness. If you want to be sure that you don't slide into a spiritual free fall, I want you to pledge every single day to express gratitude for what God has done for you, for his faithfulness in your past. Whether you've been faithful or not, God's been faithful to you, and he'll continue to be faithful to you. Above our fireplace in our home, we have a a painting in Lamentations 3, 
I think it's verse 2 is on there that says, um, your mercies are new. As great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new each morning. I love that. Great is his faithfulness. Amidst all the condemnation here, amidst all the gloom and doom, we serve a loving God, a patient God, a compassionate God, and a faithful God. And if you remember that, it'll help you from slipping from the free falling that Israel did. Although maybe we've been faithless, and we have, he's given us a new day. Although sometimes we get upset, we even shake our fist at God. We've got to remember he's the one that gives us life. He's the one that gives us breath. He's all we need. He has promised us eternity in his presence. He gives us peace and joy in the journey. You can have peace and joy in the midst of whatever you're going through. All he's asked is, hey, stop and remember who I am and how I'm involved in your life and how faithful I am. We need to see God for who he is, compassionate, merciful, giving us great opportunities. And today, friends, is a great opportunity for all of us, including me, to just allow the Holy Spirit to show us any, any sin, anything in our life. God's not going to turn his back on it. It's an invitation to his grace. We'll be more sober next time we're tempted when we think about God's judgment and the sin that would interrupt that fellowship with him. God's judgment will come. Hebrews tells us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if we turn to him, if we repent, if we pursue the the life God wants us to have. Elevate the word. And get rid of those things that trip you up. That's so important. Remember, God will discipline you for your rebellion. But let's remember, God's faithful. He's faithful to us. He's shown us his faithfulness time and time again. And he'll continue to be faithful to us in the future. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can learn some things that we can apply to our life out of the book of Amos. And God, I thank you that you are a just God. I thank you, Lord, that you don't turn your eye away from sin. Whether it's the sins of the world and the sins of the culture, or whether it's my sins or the sins of churches. God, I pray today that we will be encouraged as we leave this place, as we reflect upon the faithfulness of God. And I pray that throughout this week that you will speak to each and every heart, Lord, of things that we need to take care of. That we might lay on the altar our favorite sins, the feeling of unforgiveness that helps us to remain in control even though you're asking us to forgive those little things that don't seem like we're stealing but it really is dishonest Lord whatever it is God I pray that you will love us enough to bring them to our attention so that we can repent 
so that we won't fall into a spiritual free fall. And God, I thank you that you are faithful to those of us who will call upon you, who will trust in you. You're a faithful God, and we thank you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness in the past. Thank you for the faithfulness through the last couple difficult years. Thank you for your faithfulness in the years ahead. And help us to keep our eyes upon the promised land that you promised. In Jesus' name. Let's sing this final song together, shall we?